Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. Welcome to Word in Your Ear. Who's been before? (laughs) If you've been before, you know that our proud boast is start early, finish early. Okay? Uh, So that we can guarantee you can be looking at the inside of your lids by about 9.15 or something like that with a full evening of entertainment information still on board. Uh, Welcome, welcome. It's the young people, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, to introduce our first turn, I, 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 I uncovered this historical artefact today. This is a record which I bought with my own money at, I think, Valances in Leeds roughly 50 years ago, pretty much this week. Um, and I was doing the usual calculation, which is that if you take 50 years back from the uh, time of the release, that then takes you to the before the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which gives you an idea of what a hell of a long time it is ago. And this is the first album by Crosby, Stills and Nash, which I, along with everybody else who fancied themselves as being kind of hip and taste, uh, tasteful at the time, uh, rushed out to buy and, uh, and then there, there seemed to be an unconscionably long time between the release of that album and the, the album afterwards, Deja Vu which I also have here which I, I subsequently discovered is about a year that, that incredibly long time because it gives you an idea of how fast things move in, the, in those days uh, the Crosby, Tills, Nash & Young were not a group that I, I've followed in, in great detail over the years because they seemed to be it, they seemed to live a life and conduct a career that was almost too complicated to keep track of. And so I'm glad to say that, uh, that our first guest this evening has, uh, has done something about that complication by uh, laying it all out in an extraordinary biography of this group. Uh, Crosby, Tills, Nash & Young, would you please welcome Peter Doggett. Thank you. Now, Peter's been here before... Uh, you've been a guest in Word in Your Ear before, talking about your your book um, about the history of popular music and electric shock. Electric shock. Yep. Electric shock. Still available. Indeed. Uh, and before that, a really good book about uh, the Beatles and their financial affairs called uh, You Never Give Me Your Money. Uh, and so, was this something you've been wanting to do for a long time, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young? It was something I thought I would do eventually, but. Um I'm, af- I'm afraid to say it was actually my agent's idea. He emailed me and said, you do realise it's the 50th anniversary next year. Right. Or, or two years' time, don't you? And he's a fan as well. So it was like, oh, shit, OK. Because it was something we talked about that maybe I would do. And I was in the middle of a non-music book, which one day I will finish. And um, as soon as I started doing it, I thought, oh, yeah, I was actually born to write this book, so here I am. So how far do you go back with Crosby, Tills and Nash and Young? I mean, you're personally, when was the first time you came across them? Um, not in 1969, because I'm just too young, David. Oh, of course. course. Uh, 1970, the friend at school had 
um, the first Stephen Stills album, so probably early 71, and he had Love the One You With, and it started from there. He, he bought the CSN album and Deja Vu because he was doing a Saturday job and he could afford them. Absolutely. So let's, let's just talk about the, the three the founding members, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and their kind of, their, their backgrounds, if you like. So David Crosby, give us a, give us a quick idea of David Crosby's background. Where did he come from? What sort of family and so forth? Um, first of all, we ought to identify him because this is this is as rare as seeing a picture of me with hair. This is David Crosby's second right here, right, with the Beatles fringe disguising the fact that it was already starting to veer backwards. Um, he was the child of a Hollywood cinematographer um, and a, a, a socialite mother, and they went off when they got married before David was uh, conceived. They went off to South America to catch pumas and snakes and goodness knows what else. Um, he, the father, was involved in some, some of the most adventurous Hollywood films of the 30s. And also he was a troublemaker in Hollywood in that he formed, um, I've forgotten the name of it, but it was like a league of left-wing Hollywood um, workers which was the scourge of the Hollywood establishment at the time. I don't know if that rings any bells with his son at all. Um, his son was a troublemaker as well. His well. son had a school report saying that he was... <laughs> what was it? Going to, he was going to end up in jail or something? What did he was, yes, he was, he was going to end up in jail. And at the time, he revealed that, which was the 70s. He said, which just goes to show how wrong they were. Of course, <laughs> fast forward another decade and David Crosby's in jail. Yeah. Um, he was a folky, a jazz musician, and he loved vocal harmonies, and he is one of the purest, uh, most brilliant vocal harmony exponents, I think, ever in popular music. And was playing Ravi Shankar and John Coltrane and the birds. He was. Tour bus was yeah. influenced kind of eight miles high. Yeah, exactly, yes. Um, what was the dynamic of him in the birds? Was he a troublemaker in the birds? Yes, basically. He was a troublemaker in the birds. He was a troublemaker in every room he's ever been in. Right. Uh, there's a great quote in the book from Joni Mitchell where she says, the thing about David Crosby is he can make you feel more high than anybody else in the world with his smile and his eyes twinkle and so on. Or he can bring you down like nobody else in the world. And I've experienced both when I've met him. So, Right. So that's David Crosby. Um, Stephen Stills, we're looking at a picture of the Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills there on the right. Yep. What's his background? Um, his parents had a, the strangest life going because they seemed to veer backwards and forwards from being multimillionaires to paupers. So Stephen Stills never quite knew whether he was an aristocrat or whether he was a bum's kid. Um, he was brought up his early teens in um, uh, Central America, which is where he got his love for Latin rhythms and so on. He was obsessed with music from an early age, can play just about every instrument going, and could also start a fight in an empty room like David Crosby. <laughs> so a perfect combination of talents for the same band. But he was really... Uh, go into this a bit more. He could play anything, couldn't he? He, he could pretty He could pretty much. much look at it and yeah. play it. And if you look at the Crosby, Stills Nash record, he plays just about every instrument. Every instrument apart from the drums. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and given half a chance, he would have played those as well. Yeah, right. So David Crosby from a kind of uh, arty... Bohemian background, stills from this adventurous Central American. Graham Nash from Blackpool? Uh, born in Blackpool, lived in Salford. Right. So, um, what, evacuated? Was that why he was born in Blackpool? I, I, I think so. Right. Perhaps the local hospital in Salford right. was, was closed or something, I don't know, something like that. But um, the, the Hollies, one of the most successful British bands of the 60s, um, kept, they made sure they were always exactly six months behind the Beatles. That's right. Um, they made wonderful, <laughs> wonderful pop records that some people don't think of age very well. And Graham Nash was the group Troublemaker. There's a bit of a theme emerging here um, in that he was the one who took drugs first. Now, if you meet all the other guys in the Hollies, as I have done years ago, they, they were definitely pint men, all of them. They liked to pint. And um, so there was a real sort of, um, what's the word, schism yeah, yeah. between the drinkers, and then Graham Nash discovers the, the old wacky-backy, and then gets introduced to acid, and 
you can't contain that in well, the same Well, there's a fantastic band. bit in the book where the, the, he goes back to England and they're still playing, the Hollies are playing kind of Batley variety. Yeah. And then he's back over in America. I know, he's, ab- he's, absolutely incredible. And he's I mean, in with the, you know, the can, I, can I just point out that when he played Batley Variety Club in 1968, among the audience, me. Oh, oh good. I was there. Because the Hollies were a fantastic live act, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. They were better than pretty much anybody of that, of that kind of background because they weren't screamed at particularly. You know, no. you could hear them, you could hear them play, and they could sing in tune. They really could sing in tune. Yeah. But but he was. He was the one who felt he ought to be in a slightly cooler group, didn't he? Uh, ex- a, a, a huge amount cooler. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's hard now, looking back 51 years, to imagine the, the gap between the people who'd taken drugs and the people who hadn't taken drugs. Yeah. And it's not just a question of what was inspiring them to write songs. It was a whole attitude towards the universe. And so Graham Nash's attitude was completely at odds with the rest of the band. Because he'd written this song, Kin Midas in Reverse, which was, you know, regarded as their kind of interesting kind of proclaharamy, yeah. weird thing, and which it wasn't a very big hit, was it? Didn't it didn't sell. It only got to number 13 or whatever, something like that. Right. Um, and he was convinced this was going to lead them into a new Sergeant Pepper era of significance, instead of which all their fans went, well, you can't hum it. I mean, what's the point? Right. So right. after that, they did a song called Jennifer Echoes, which is one of the most execrable records of the 1960s. <laughs> and finishes, finishes up leaving his country, leaving his wife, leaving his band, because yeah. almost one it, point. Exactly. Incredible because when reinvention he's met, of himself. He's met somebody we're going to see in a minute, and he's also started taking even more drugs and singing harmonies with yeah. uh, Crosby and Stills. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're looking at a picture of Mama Cass and Peter Talk of the Monkees, recently deceased. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, th- these people had a very pivotal part in the formation of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Is that fair to say? Well, in 66 and 67, in Laurel Canyon, these were two of the coolest cats around. They have the big houses. They have the places where everybody else in the music community gravitated. They had the, the swimming pools everybody else was in. And it was in their back gardens that everybody would take drugs and sing acoustic, you know, play acoustic guitars and sing harmonies. Now, um, on the left, Mama Cass was responsible for introducing Crosby to Nash. She was responsible for introducing, let's get this straight, Nash to Stills, I think, or via, via Crosby anyway. So she was, she was the connection. And when it came to Crosby, Stills and Nash, it was her idea. She fantasised at the time the mums and papas were breaking up about a harmony band that would have all her friends in it. And well, she really wanted John Lennon in the band as well because she fancied the pants off him. But she thought, no, I can't, I'm too scared. I'll get Paul McCartney, he'll be available. So, she was, <laughs> so her fantasy band was Crosby, Stills, Nash and her. Now they were all in her swimming pool, so that was easy. And Paul McCartney. And so she sort of just threw that out there and everybody went, yeah, great idea. And then Crosby, Stills and Nash formed and there's no room for Mama Cass and she was heartbroken. Um, now, in the case of Peter Talk, he had known um, Stephen Stills on the folk scene from the early 60s. They used to, apparently used to get mistaken for each other. Um, and then, of course, he became a monkey and was famous for being an idiot. But actually, he wasn't an idiot. He was a, a turned-on, intelligent... Because um, he played the idi- idiot in, in the in, group, didn't that's he? That's right, yes. Yeah, so Stephen Stills auditioned for the monkeys, He too. did audition for the monkeys, although he now claims he didn't. But he did. He but really he did, did the, audition. There's factual exactly, evidence, yeah. isn't there? Because yeah. they were looking for somebody who could play, weren't they? They yeah. wanted one musician. Yes. <laughs> and they found that Mike Nesmith, Mike Nesmith got that... That slot, didn't he? He was already in the band. Mike Nesbeth was in the band from Texas, very focused on his music. Stephen Stills was considered, he had bad teeth, but they could have fixed those. But he was also from Texas and also very focused on his music. And can you imagine the rows that would have been between Nesbeth and Stills? No, that's true. It wouldn't have worked. So, now... There are many very prominent women in this story who, you know, generally don't get treated very well. Mm-hmm. One of the key people in this is Joni Mitchell. Where does Joni Mitchell fit in all this? Um, she, fortunately for her, was quite capable of taking care of herself. Yeah. 
thank goodness. Um, she met David Crosby when she was performing on the um, coastline in Florida in a small club, and he came in and went, oh, okay, and immediately wanted to marry her, producer, manager, do something with her, and he ended up doing a sort of combination of all the, those things, and that Crosby and Joni Mitchell became a couple. Um, Crosby helped her get a record contract. Crosby produced her first album by virtually doing nothing. No, sure. Which, which is what the record company didn't want. They wanted a nice orchestra with her songs. Um, and then, as couples did, particularly when two of the most egotistical people in the history of the uh, Western Hemisphere got, got together, that was also not a relationship that was bound to last. last so they broke up. She then was briefly going out with Leonard Cohen, and then, <laughs> around Nash. the same time, met Graham Nash. And Graham Nash wrote a couple of songs which fortunately were never released, but which I talk about in the book, um, about him going back to America, having um, tasted the pleasure of Joni Mitchell, let's put it that way, gone back to England and thought, shit, I really want to be with Joni in America. He goes back, finds her in New York, and she's living down the street with Leonard Cohen and is not particularly interested in him at all. So she actually makes him wait for a year, and then they get together. And he writes a song about it, Pre-Road Downs, which is on that first album. So Graham Nash had been married in England. To Rose. Rose, Rose Marie Eccles, yes. Yeah, right, of, uh, inspired Jennifer Eccles. Indeed, yes. And she was just left behind when he, he got the prospect of this career in America. Yeah, I, I found an interview with her in something like Disc or Record Mirror from 1968. Penny Valentine, who some of you, the older, older yeah, members yeah, yeah. of the audience may remember, in, interviewed the Hollies girls. So Mrs. Nash, Mrs. Clark, and so on. And um, it's a very nice little interview from 68. And she says... Well, I, I love Graham. I love it when he writes a new song and plays it to me. But it's so boring. All his friends come round. They just want to play guitar and sing. It's so dull. And so <laughs> you can see her point. But if, if you could then put that on one side, and then he's in America with Johnny Mitchell on the other side, who is encouraging him, um, outwriting him and everybody else in the room, and exuding creativity from every pore, you can see that doesn't matter how wonderful Rose Nash was or how devoted he was, he was always going to go with Joni. Talk a little bit about the fact that, that presumably at this time, people, these people were writing songs that were openly about their relationships with each other. They weren't hiding these things at all, were they? No. I mean, if you, if, if you look at Joni, for example, she writes a song called Willie, and um, Graham Nash is Graham William Nash and his friends called him Willie. Willie is my child, he is my father. And she talks about the fact they haven't got married yet and sort of pins the blame on him, which is not actually fair. Most of the songs on the first Crosby, Stills and Nash album are written about the women they were going out with at the time. There was, no, there was absolutely none of this Eleanor Rigby, I'll write about an imaginary figure. It was always about their real lives. And My Old Man was about one of them, wasn't it? Uh, yes, that was about that's Graham right. Nash, yeah. That's right. And... Um, our house was well, yeah. which we're yeah. 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 later on. So they're all openly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're, they're kind of writing features about each other, aren't yeah. they? And, yeah. and, and you In can. Some... I mean, you, you could make a, comp a compilation album. It has to be a very big one of songs that all these people have written about each other down the years, from then to now. Yeah, it's astonishing the effect that, that, that Joni Mitchell had. Not only she's kind of, kind of introduced them all, but she also wrote the song that was one of their biggest hits. Yeah. And Judy Collins is another one. Judy, Judy Collins. Collins. Looking at a picture of Judy Collins. Um, yeah, tell us about Ju where Judy Collins fits in. When, when Stephen Stills was a struggling, a struggling folkie in Greenwich Village with Peter Talk about 64, he had a Judy Collins album with a close-up picture of her on the front cover. And as young romantic men are wont to do, he gazed at it and imagined what a relationship with Judy Collins would be like and subsequently wrote songs like Bluebird, which was about Judy Collins, whom he had never met. But it's about, listen to my, you know, to, to my Bluebird cry. And no, he was imagining what it was to be in love with her. And then in the summer of 68, he is recruited to perform on an album with her. And of course, within about three seconds, they fall in love and have a fantastically tempestuous relationship for about nine months. And all, almost all of Stills' songs on the first CSN album are about Judy Collins. Starting with the first 
song Sweet Judy Sweet Blue, Judy Blue, Blue Eyes. When, when Crosby, Stills and Nash form, uh, you make a really good point of what, what they all seem to, to bring to the party. And Stills, as we said earlier, plays all the instruments and writes most of the songs. Graham Nash can sing harmonies far more accurately and faster than anybody else could do three three harmonies in the, in, yeah. in, in the time it takes everyone else to do one. And Crosby's really just this sort of symbol of freedom. This guy, yeah. As you describe it, a bottle of vibes, they call him, don't they? Yeah. Well, is that, is that, that's roughly the case. Isn't it? That's, that's, one of the, that's part of the combination, isn't it? It is, but it's, there's more than that. There's the magic of how it sounds when they sing together. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember Graham Nash told me that the guys in the Hollies could sing the same notes that CSN sang, but it wouldn't sound like them. It's the combination of the voices. It's the way they learn to sing with each other, to yeah. drag some syllables out. They would, because uh, no, they came from such different backgrounds. You've got a Californian kid, a Southern American kid, and um, a guy from Manchester. And so they don't sound alike, but somehow there's a, a, ma- a magic which is just, um, it's impossible to copy it. So they they decide they're going to be a group. It, oh, no, they're not going to be a group. Okay, go well, on. They're going to make a record, yeah. Oh, right, they're the not re- going to be a group. No, the reason they're Crosby, Stills and Nash was to avoid being called Buffalo Springfield or the birds and being stuck in that. Little did they know that here we are 50 years later still talking. Right. CSN, CSNY. But the idea was that they would do the album together and then they could do whatever the hell they wanted. And if they wanted to make another record together, they would. But, of course, then people started waggling enormously big bills of money in front of them, and so they need to go on the road. Um, and So was there some um, discussion about the order of their names? Yeah. Um, as far as Stephen Stills was concerned, it should have been Stills. <laughs> or, or possibly Stills, Nash and Crosby. That was the other one he liked. But he was the sort of leader of the group, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he did was write the main most driver, of the songs. He wrote most of the songs. Yeah, uh, he yeah. was the main producer, the main songwriter, and the main instrumentalist. How did scene. they settle on Crosby, Stills, Nash? Was it just because it sounded better? It was um, metrically better? Yes, yeah, so, as David Cros- Crosby said to me, it was so obvious to all of them, apart from Stephen Stills, everybody in the world, it just ran better, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And at some point, the, the argument got so intense that even David Crosby left the room and just said, I'm going to come back when you've agreed. And eventually, Stills was like, oh. But it, it is one of those things where you do wonder. It's like with, with, with John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And, you know, we've all heard Paul McCartney complain about yesterday and... Um, on computers, it will come up as a song written by John Lennon and... Puh, it won't say Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> again, it does make you wonder if it had been called Stills, Nash and Crosby, would we see it differently? I love I the way know. every aspect of the story, every page of the book is full of tensions <laughs> and arguments. You know, this is yep. a band who kind of epitomised the kind of West yep. Coast, fabulous, beautiful yeah, harmony. Yes. How did they come to be signed to Atlantic, which on the face of it was not the obvious place at um, all? No, well, it was the moment when Atlantic was starting to branch out into being a rock label rather than just an R&B label. And the Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills were already on Atlantic. Um, and the, the, there was then a complicated sort of transfer transfer window kind of situation where people were swapped from one band to another. And eventually they all ended up on Atlantic, mainly because Stephen Stills loved Armit Hertigan, who was the boss of Atlantic. We're... Um, so. Now, talk about the, these managers who are very key figures in this. We're looking at a picture of yeah. Elliot Roberts and, uh, and David Geffen, who were the kind of two people who really moved them together, is that fair to say? What did they, see, what did they think the potential was? What did they see, though, see in that combination of people? Um, money, obviously. <laughs> I mean, looking at Elliot Roberts, who's second on the right in that picture there, you can see, with the moustache and the hair, that he, he's of the same ilk as Crosby and Stills. He wants to be the cool kid. And he wasn't really that cool, but he did end up being the manager of, first of all, Neil Young in 68, and then Neil, through Neil Young, he ended up managing Joni Mitchell. Mitchell. Sorry, yeah. I've got this around the wrong way. Joni Mitchell, Mitchell first, first. Yeah, right, then yeah. Neil Young, and David Crosby along the way as well. So he, he, was, he was obviously simpatico, he liked to joint, and so he was fine to be the manager. But I don't think, left to his own devices in 68, 69, he would have got them that great a deal, because he, he wasn't a, a sort of business powerhouse in the way that David Geffen was. 
Um, now, David Geffen had an ego probably even bigger than anybody else in this story. He had no qualifications to be in the music business beyond the fact that he talked his way into one agency after another and got bigger and bigger and bigger jobs. And he um, masterminded the career of Laura Nero, very successful songwriter and singer at the time, was actually, although he was gay, he was actually her boyfriend for a while as well. Uh, Crosby and Nash loved Laura Nero, and so it was an easy sell. Um, as David Crosby said to me, he was a shark, but he was our shark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was. And, and he got a really big, what was a big deal with Atlantic at the time. Yeah, really. that's right, yeah. A lot of and, money. Yeah, and also, um, in, in theory, their first ever show was, was going to be a pop festival in Atlantic City. So, I mean, they were starting big. They weren't, they weren't starting in the, the, the back of a small club like but this. this is the funny thing, we're looking at a picture here of the famous, uh, you know, shack that they, uh, on the patio of which they're pictured on the, on the cover of their first album, which is kind of hilarious, but a very profound statement, isn't it? You know, here's this group who are starting at the top but they're going to go and have their pictures taken looking as if, they, you know, they were born in the backwoods and they didn't have a pot to piss in at all. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a really important statement, wasn't it, that? Yeah, and you can, you can see how well David Crosby has combed his hair. For the, <laughs> what's left of it for the occasion as well. Um, Didn't they go back there a week later and the, uh, yeah. the shack had just been knocked down? Is that right? One of the great problems of a band made up of people's names is that people want you to sit in the right order yeah. for photographs so that idiots can go, oh... That must be... Absolutely. Oh, it's Ant and Deck have built a career. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, Exactly, and I still don't know which one's which, incidentally, but, but you were telling me that Ant's on the left. Yeah, yeah. Oh, OK. It's like well, salt and pepper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very good, OK. Well, come on, well, keep up, people. <laughs> I'm learning things here. Well, you can see how they were thinking here. Probably they'd taken too much acid, acid that morning, but they, they lined up in order, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Unfortunately, they forgot the photograph. Turns right, around. Right, yeah. right. So, yes, they did go back a week later, and, yes... The house had been knocked down. So when, at what point does Neil Young come into this already kind of quite fissile um, arrangement? When Stephen Stills is a folk, folky in 64, he ends up touring Canada with a folk band who, as soon as they got away from their managers, started playing rock and roll instead. And he runs into Neil Young. They're on the same circuit in Canada. And then they bump into each other in America 18 months later famous story about a hearse that most of you will know, it's in the book um, and he's in the Buffalo Springfield and guess what, he's only the second mo most um, asshole like person in Buffalo Springfield <laughs> because Stephen Sells has already taken the top spot but if there is a fight in Buffalo Springfield going on, it's always between Stephen Stills and Neil Young and other members talk about having to sort of drag them apart backstage at gigs or, or, or no. So, but Stills wanted him in. He wanted another uh, instrumentalist, didn't he? In, in CSN. But yeah. you, you make the, the, the point that, that uh, for, for Young, this was a terrific kind of professional opportunity. He thought he was going to make a lot of money. Yeah. I he mean, thought he was going to get a lot of publicity for Crazy Horse, which I think yeah. he just for. None of that kind of let's join this beautiful gang of people <laughs> and make beautiful music. This was just a no. naked uh, bit of career opportunity, wasn't it? Now, he, he, he would not agree with this now, but when he joined, he joined on the basis that he was a junior member. Um, and that was the original offer, was it was going to be Crosby, Stills and Nash with Neil Young in very small print oh, if really? he was on the cover oh, right. at all. And then he, Young said, no, if I'm going to be in it, I'm going to be on the, have my picture on the cover and my name on the cover. OK. Um, he wasn't expecting to write many songs. He wasn't expecting to be a leader. He was just going to stand at the back and soak up some publicity. And, yeah, at that point, he'd had two albums out, the Neil Young album, and everybody knows this is nowhere with... Crazy Horse, and they both flopped. They'd sold to, to a handful of Buffalo Springfield fans. Mm -hmm. And so his solo career was going nowhere. And, and if he hadn't joined CSN, I'd, it's hard to think what kind of a figure he might have turned into, whether he would have been, I don't know, a Fred Neal or a Tim Harding. No, not a Tim Harding, because he didn't have the hit songs. Possibly a less successful Randy Newman, something like that. 
just a cult figure, he would never have been a mainstream success. I, I'm intrigued by the, the stories you tell in the book of the, of the various people who at one time or another thought they were a member of Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, and the kind of classic version, uh, classic case of this, we were just looking at this earlier, mm. this is going back to the first album cover, which has Crosby, Stills and Nash on the front. And if you look at the back very closely, you can see a figure, a, a dim figure looking through the window. <laughs> and that is who? That is Mr. Dallas Taylor, the drummer. <laughs> the drummer. Dallas, don't, don't worry, Dallas, Dallas. You can be on the cover. You're, you're on the Just, cover. Don't worry about it. That's right. Everything's Just move fine. a bit further back. Yep, well, yes. And he wasn't even there when they took the photo. Oh, really? He had his photo taken in Crosby's kitchen and it was pasted in afterwards. But he and the bassist did get their names on the front of Deja Vu. So they do, that's right. Right, right, yeah. right. But were there people who came into these things thinking they were going to contribute songs and, and it didn't yeah, happen? Not in the case of Dallas Taylor, but in the case of Greg Reeves, the bass player on Deja Vu, yes. When, um, at the time they started recording that album, David Crosby was proudly saying, wow, man, can you dig it? There were five, five cats, man, who write great songs, man, in this group, man. Um, and he was including Greg Reeves. And then when Greg Reeves put his songs up, the rest of them said, I don't think so, actually, you know. And, uh, right, right. But if Neil Young so desperately wanted to be part of it, why was he... Uh, and in fact, we're looking at a picture now of them on stage at Woodstock. Why, why did he not want to be... Uh, part of the film. He, he wouldn't be in the film, would he? And in fact, he doesn't appear, in fact, in the, in their, in the, in the first instalment of the albums. Uh, no, on the, in, in the movie, all you see of, of Crosby, Stills and Nash is... Uh, sorry, CSMY is Crosby, Stills and Nash singing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. And they actually cut Neil Young's name out of the introduction that was done on stage because they can't have Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and then there are only three guys on film. It just looks... Weird. So they actually snipped that bit out on the soundtrack. But he was there, supposedly. I mean, he's changed the story so many times. Um, in 69, Neil Young did not wield the power to be able to say, that's it, fuck it, I'm not going on film. But he did his best to s stay at the back of the stage. He didn't sign a release form, which the rest of them did when, when they were going up to on stage. So to be safe, the director said, OK, well... Try not to get too much of that guy. But why did yeah. he? I, I love this. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah, sorry, one of the emblems of the chaos of Woodstock is that people were signing releases yeah. as they <laughs> went on, on exactly. stage. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Every member of Joe Cocker's yeah. Grease Band or whatever yeah. Yeah. had to. Absolutely extraordinary. It was chaos, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, the, the strange thing is why Neil Young. I mean, it's almost as if he had a vision about how important this festival was going to be. And he's right. I mean, he doesn't really belong at Woodstock. He belongs in CSNY briefly, but he's not the Woodstock generation. He's not part of the Woodstock spirit. But I don't think he can have known that then. It was as if he had a, a sixth sense of, hang on a minute, this is not something I want to be associated with in 50 years' time. So, but, but they, they were starting to develop this act that was kind of two parts, wasn't it? There was the... They used to call wooden, wooden music, music. <laughs> yep. very twee term, uh, where they clustered around microphones and harmonised. And then there was these kind of interminable, you know, electric workouts where Stills and Young would lock horns forever. For about half an hour, yes. Right, right. <laughs> yep. And they, that, was, that was the style from early that, on, was it? That, yeah, for, from the start, even before they there was a band beyond the three of them, they always envisaged that would be, it would be acoustic, it would be electric. As far as, Cro as Crosby and Nash were concerned, they would happily have gone on the road as Simon and Garfunkel, except a three-man Simon and Garfunkel, just acoustic guitars and lots of adoring women in the front row with long blonde hair. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as Stephen Stills was concerned, that was fine for half an hour, but he wanted to play rock and roll as well. And they played Altamont, didn't they? They did. They and, and, and so this is August 1969. Yeah, they tried to erase the fact that they'd ever been involved in it. Uh, yes, they did play. They did play Altamont. They weren't there very long. Um, as far as Keith Richards, Keith Richards was concerned, he didn't even see them. They were on stage for such a short amount of time. And he said, oh, I heard they didn't turn up. But they did turn up. They played about half an hour, and then they quit as quickly as they could possibly get out of there. And they were going to be in the film. Um, the, 
I can't remember the names of the, the people who made the... Oh, the Maisels. The Maisel brothers, that's right. And that they got as far as actually getting David Crosby to re-record some of his stage dialogue that they hadn't captured properly about, you know, man, please, guys, you guys, stop fighting, please. Oh, really? Yeah. Something like that. Better did it again. Imagine yeah. going into a studio <laughs> exactly. to redo okay, that. Okay, I mean, it's like if anybody's seen the series... What's it called? Uh, Toast. Toast of London. Yeah. It's, it, it's like that, just going over and over. But um, then their managers thought, shit, this is bad publicity, Altamont. And so he didn't sign the release forms, and so there's no mention of them in the, in the um, Altamont. Because, it's, once again, it's worth reflecting on the fact just how closely these events were. Yeah. This is August. Altamont is what? December? Late November's December? December? First yeah. week of December, I think. Same yeah. year. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just different coast... Yeah. And also, the, it, it was part of the, the end of that whole, almost immediately, of the kind of Woodstock dream, wasn't it? It and is. There's, a, there's mean, an element of that, is that people start to, to react against their Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's music yeah. and what they represent. I mean, that, that well, except they the were fact. huge at this point. They were huge, they? but there was, a, there was a slight turn in the tide in terms of the press, wasn't there? Um, that came very quickly, yeah. yeah. For some, some reason, um, the underground press took against them and said they were egotistical, which I find hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, there, there was something about there was something about their emotional honesty that didn't chime with a hippie scene where you were supposed to be creating myths. Yeah, and although they did create a myth in their own way, they also insisted on behaving like, in their version of ordinary human beings when they yeah. were on stage. And if, if you like, that was CSNY shtick was the fact that if you saw them at Woodstock, they would be exactly the same as if they were sat here and just performing to the crowd in this room. So the second album, Deja Vu, comes out in 1970. And as I said earlier, it seemed as if it was you know, delayed forever, <laughs> didn't it? You know, yeah. people were saying, when is this Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record going to arrive? Because in those days, most people made out two albums a year, didn't yeah. they? So they, this was... Barely one a year, wasn't it? And also, I mean, we've talked about them signing to Atlantic. When the CSN album came out, um, Atlantic were promising... Uh, that came out in America May, June, 69. Um, Atlantic in America were promising that before Christmas there would be a second Crosby, Stills & Nash album and solo albums by each of the other three. Before Christmas? Before Christmas, year? 69, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this, this album not coming out to... April, May 1970 was huge, huge em uh, embarrassment for Atlantic right. because they wanted the money. Yeah. You know, the but uh, again, a huge commercial success. And this uh, yeah, is a, a big success in the UK as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which, which, I mean, that's the weird thing about the first CSN album. Um, again, hard to remember. In 68, when they formed, Nobody really, unless you were a real underground music aficionado, you would not have heard of David Crosby or Stephen Stills. But you would know Graham Nash because he was in Hollies. Hollies, good lads, Hollies. They like a pint. Um, <laughs> and they're on top of the pops every week. And so if you look at the NME in 68, when CSN formed, Nash's supergroup. And it's always Nash's supergroup. And when the Crosby, Stills, Nash album comes out, despite that, it's not, not a hit. It doesn't get in the top 20 in this country. Um, so it's only really with Deja Vu that they start to pick up. But within minutes, they, the, the tensions had already started to develop, hadn't they? Well, yeah, even they were touring. That, yeah. you know, and, and, and where was, the, where was the, the, the heart of that tension? Was that, was that... Um, I think there might have been lots of egos in the room. Yeah. That was the, and on the stage, that was the problem. So they, their first gig is the, in Chicago just before, a couple of days before Woodstock, and that's mid-August '69. Within a year, they split up. Well, they split up several times, but they managed to get through the first tour, okay, in the winter of 69 into early 1970, and they play the Albert Hall in London, um, and then more or less break up at that point because Stephen Stills is heartbroken that um, it's not his band anymore. They, they get back together, they do an American tour that lasts for one gig, and they fall to pieces one again. Um, then their managers impressed upon them how much money they're going to make, and so they managed to mend their egos enough to get through the rest of the American tour. And that's it. Then they don't play together for four years. For four years, that's right. But this is... They, we're looking at a picture of the, the, the events at Kent State University in Ohio in... When, when is this? 1970. 1970, yeah. yeah. Right, which 
inspires or later on inspires Neil Young to write the song Ohio. Tell us about that. Um, well, yes. There, there are state troopers, who, National Guardsmen and so on, who shoot and kill well, two students and two friends of students um, on the campus because they've, they've been protesting. Um, utterly ridiculous. It causes a nationwide student strike. Um, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, well, I mean, they're of their era, so they were interested in politics, but at that point, CSN hadn't done any particularly political songs, apart from David Crosby's Long Time Gone, I suppose. Um, now, so impressed is Neil Young by this, that it's only about three weeks later when he sees pictures of it in a magazine that he has moved to write the song Ohio. It's not a question of him seeing it on the news and going home that night mm. and writing the song. It's, o- it's only when, when Crosby puts the magazine photographs in front of him that Nash starts to come up with a riff and comes up with a sort of a song, a bit of a song, which is what becomes Ohio. And well, it's a bit like Woodstock, isn't it? Which Joni Mitchell wrote when she didn't go there. Yeah. <laughs> she was in a motel room, yeah. you know. Did that change the press relationship with the group? Because they must have been impressed that they had a kind of political fibre to them and dimension. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. And, yeah. they, and of course, it, it did it completely change the power balance as well. Because suddenly you've got this completely off-the-moment hit single um, speaking about our crusades... And it's Neil Young. He's yeah. front and centre. It's his song, his passion. So the power moves within the group, doesn't it? Yeah. It's quite it's like it's you say, it was Nash's group, it was Still's group, then yeah. it, was, yeah. it was Young's group. It was and never it, Crosby's group, was it? <laughs> um, it? It was Crosby's country at that point, as far as he was concerned. So. Right. Or the, the, at least, I mean, what people used to say about seeing them on stage in 69, 70 was that they were perfect representatives of the counterculture, of the hippies. And in each one of them, you could see something of yourself. So maybe if you weren't as outspoken as Crosby, you could identify with the wounded romanticism of uh, Stills or whatever. Um, And that sort of worked. I can't remember what the original question was, sorry. Well, just the power moving. Oh, the power moving, yeah. 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 Um, Now, I've I've said already, at the start, Stephen Stills thought it was his band. Um, Or, okay... It's a three-way partnership. And then with Neil Young, it's a four-way partnership. But Crosby and Nash, um, particularly Crosby, are starting to get fed up with Stills and his ego and his cocaine habit. I mean, fancy David Crosby getting fed up with somebody else's. <laughs> it's rich, habit. isn't it? Shows you how, <laughs> yeah. how extreme Stills was at that point. Um, and the clash of egos and the fact that Stills and Young had fallen back into the same old sort of habits of arguing and so on. Um, and if you listen to the tapes from the 1970 American tour, you can hear how close Crosby, Nash and Young are, and that Stills is like an outsider. He's not joining in the repartee. And it's almost like it's, he's on one side of the stage and the other three cats are all gathered around a microphone on the other side mm. of the stage. And it gradually, almost by default, becomes Neil Young's band. And he's one of the most brilliant, I'd have to say passive-aggressive, manoeuvring swines, to quote Paul McCartney, in history. And went on to have fantastic success, because they all four put out these solo yeah. albums. I mean, obviously, in Neil Young's case, I'm not putting him down, because yeah. he's an artistic genius, or certainly has been an artistic genius. But the way... I, don't, I, I have not been able to work out whether he went into CSN... He certainly went in thinking, boosting my profile... It's really difficult to tell whether he ever actually imagined that he could take over the band, but he did. But they let him do it. But also, it's a lot to do with these solo albums, isn't it, that come out in 1970, 71. Yeah. First Stephen Steele's solo album, Love the One You're With, yep. a big hit, you know. Uh, uh, but the biggest one is after the gold rush, Neil, Neil Young, isn't it? Which you... Well, yes, at, at, at the moment they come out, the biggest one is Stephen Stills, yeah. because they had the hit single. But yes... Um, in a year's time, which is the one that people are still buying, still talking about, it's after the gold rush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that must have, you know, yeah. stirred the pot even even more. Yeah. Um, Rita Coolidge, there's a story in the book which is fantastic. We 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 just have to talk about it. It's just it's just the complexity of their of their their love lives, and and Nash meets Rita Coolidge. Is that right? And says 
ring me up at Stephen Stills' house. Um, Rita Coolidge is asked by Stephen Stills. He had he had, had guested with Delaney and Bonnie the previous year yeah. on stage and had noticed Rita Coolidge and thought, oh, I like her. And also he discovered she had a sister who looked almost exactly the same as her, Priscilla. So he, when he was doing the overdub of uh, harmonies for Love the One That you with, Crosby and Nash were there, John Sebastian, their friend, and he invited Rita and Priscilla Coolidge as well. And um, he thought, oh, okay, I'm in with a chance here, as they all did. Um, but it was actually Graham Nash who asked her out. But Nash was actually staying with Stephen Stills at that point. And so when Rita Coolidge rings up Nash at Stills' house to say, OK, we're going to go on this date then, Stills answers the phone and says, oh, no, sorry, I think Graham's... Yeah. I think he's probably out with another woman. Yeah. Would you like to come with me? I think, I think he might and have died. Slimy yeah. men's behaving yeah. badly. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, that's right, the, the, it was a question of who was going to squire Rita Coolidge at the CSMY gig. And so... Graham Nash turns up thinking, well, how come she didn't go out with me? And there she is on Stephen Stills' arm. And so they go out for a few weeks, and then Graham Nash steals her away, whereupon there's a punch-up between... I, I love Nash. the use Terrific. of these arcane yeah. uh, phrases like squire. Squire. And, and oh. on his arm. <laughs> on his arm. Which doesn't seem to apply to the, uh, the, the hurly-burly of the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I, I have heard that they held hands as well. <laughs> yeah. It was snogging. Yeah. So, yeah, well, Mark mentioned earlier, you know, that they, they came in for a, quite a bit of satire, didn't they? I was listening earlier today to National Lampoon's Lemmings show, which was their kind of mm. tongue-in-cheek satire on Which on is Chevy Woodstock. Chase, isn't it? John Belushi, Christopher Guest. Yeah, Christopher Guest yeah. from Chase. Spinal yeah. Tap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing, a whole bunch um, of those guys. Yeah, I mean, they, they were open to ridicule. Yes. And we were talking, uh, talking earlier about their, their um, reputation in the press having been so huge and so widely acclaimed when that first album came out, by the time Deja Vu comes out, except to hardcore fans, they're becoming a laughing stock. I mean, look at the pages of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone dissed everything they do from 70 right the way through, I mean, to God knows when. Apart from Neil Young. But that Lemmings show is fantastic. I watched the yeah. number, it's fantastically good. There's a lovely bit where Christopher Guest has a song called Positively Wall Street. <laughs> and they're just, they're just satirising and sending up and trying to end the whole of the hippie dream, you know, which is still represented by Crosby. And, and the National Lampoon people also, a bit later on, did a song lampooning um, Neil Young, which more or less saying, oh, he's a heroin addict. Which, I mean, was apparently you could get away with that in the mid-70s. But they came in for a lot of this. It's like you were saying earlier, because they were quite unguarded, weren't they, really? You know, they, they, they didn't have any kind of professional gloss to hide behind, did they? You, you, they went on stage and they were, they were who they were. Yeah, if there was any gloss, it was provided by cocaine, yeah. Right, right. So we're looking at a picture of them here. When is this? This is, this is early in the 1974 reunion tour, which at the time was the biggest tour in rock history. And they were charging more than Led Zeppelin and more than the Stones, yeah. I think that's right. And, and they were attracting bigger audiences than any of and them. And had this point. incredibly sophisticated merchandise, thousands of Crosby, Stills and Nash frisbees. And Frisbee. Was there a bed linen designed by so- Joni Mitchell? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think they were for the likes of us. They were just for the band. Just for the band. Yeah. Yeah. So... And so what we've seen ever since that time is kind of periodic reunions for special occasions yeah. or tax bills or whatever. Uh, and we're looking at a picture of them here. They appeared at Live Aid, apparently. I wasn't even sure that they did. They uh, did. They did. I mean, I think they wished they hadn't done. Now, I've, I've, been, I've been assured by David Crosby that if you'd heard them in the trailer rehearsing, they were brilliant, but they certainly didn't sound brilliant on stage. But at this point, David Crosby, you can't really see in that photograph, but he is on the verge of going to prison because he is out of his head on free-based cocaine. Um, And from 74 onwards, every time they get together, it's because Neil Young agrees. He is 99% of the power in that relationship. And so for whatever reason, he he was playing at uh, Live Aid, CSM were at Live Aid, and he said, oh... Fuck, okay, it's for charity, I'll sing with them. And um, I think it was probably at this show that he said to Crosby, if you clean up, we'll make an album together. And of course, Crosby then went to prison. Right, right. If you clean up with uh, you know, that sentence it, it, has been started with David Crosby many a time, hasn't it? <laughs> it is breathtaking, the, 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 the kind of 
scrapes that he got into in his life, really. I mean, having always been a, a, an incredibly badly behaved individual, it just got worse and worse, didn't it? I mean, yeah, and, and you would have to say the same for Stephen Stills. I mean, yeah, yeah. He hasn't been to prison in the same way, but he's had his ups and downs to the point that I won't go into too many details in case his libel lawyer is here, but when they were making the American Dream album in 87, which was after Crosby had been to prison, um, had come out and he was clean, and therefore he would, no, he would not want to be around anybody who was very obviously using cocaine. Well, there is somebody in the band who at that point decided to have a very obvious cocaine habit throughout those sessions, almost as if to say, fuck you. No, we're, we're, we've had to put up with a lot uh, while you've been letting us down for years and years and years. I'll do what I damn well want. So 50 years later, it's not mellowed at all, has it, this, uh, <laughs> this relationship? No, I mean... The... Well, Crosby made a very sour comment about uh, Daryl Hannah and, and, uh, and, and Neil Young. She's a poisonous predator. That's fantastic. I mean, that's what he said. Yeah. Extraordinary. Which, which is, goes back to when Daryl Hannah was going out with Jackson Brown, one of Crosby's best friends, and they split up, and subsequently Daryl Hannah alleged that Jackson Brown had beaten her up. Uh, which Jackson Brown has always denied. I don't know what the truth of it is. And so that's why Crosby then, um, as you would with one of your be- oldest best friends, decides to tell an interviewer that his new girlfriend is a poisonous predator. But to give you an idea of the lively career of David Crosby, Mark and I were talking about this this, this morning, and I had to remind Mark that David Crosby fathered Melissa Etheridge's <laughs> child, didn't he? Two, two children. Two children, yeah. yeah. Probably in his 60s or, you know... Something like that. At yes, the time. It, um, we should point out he did it at a distance. Right. <laughs> That's very well. Well, when I, well I, I finished this book the other night, and uh, I, was, I was telling Peter earlier that when I put it aside and uh, was reflecting on the extraordinary kind of uh, you know, ups and downs of the individuals uh, outlined in here, I then turned uh, for uh, respite to Twitter. And the first tweet I saw was from the editor of The Hollywood Reporter, Venerable Trade magazine, said, I've just thrown David Crosby out of our podcast studio for behaving so badly. And this is a man who no longer drinks or takes drugs, and he's 77 years old and is still an absolute monster. <laughs> and has even fallen out with, with, with Graham Nash. He's he? fallen out with Graham, Graham Nash. Nash. There was an amazing bit of YouTube of Graham Nash talking about how he would never in a million yeah. years work with this man again. And it must be true, because if there was every year when they were all going to get ridiculously rich beyond even their wildest dreams it's this year if they'd done a reunion tour this year I mean God knows how many tens of millions of dollars they were offered and yet they can't bear to be in the same room. Or the other three can't bear to be in the same room as David Crosby. So. Well, so it'll probably yeah. happen in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, which will be a shame for, uh, for uh, the author of this, uh, this fine biography of Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young. Would you please thank Peter Doggett. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. We should-